Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from March 5th, 2023 called, I Have Redeemed You, Passover Redemption, given by Deacon Aaron Hayes. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. And Matthew 26, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So God's grace and his peace are yours in Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And I invite you to uh, look at the sermon outline if you'd like to fill that out and follow along. We'll be looking at really all three of those passages that were read for us today. And so we're continuing this study of salvation history or the history of redemption as it unfolds in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament in particular, Pastor Dinger started us off, started us off last week with the book of Genesis and how in Genesis God promises a future single individual who will crush the head of the serpent. And so that promise is given. And then as Genesis unfolds, God makes a promise to Abraham. And because Abraham believes, it's because of his faith, God counts counts it as righteous. And so God makes these promises to Abraham about his descendants. He even prophesies to Abraham in Genesis 15 that Abraham's descendants are going to be in slavery. So he makes this promise hundreds of years before Israel is even a thing, before Israel is actually in Egypt. Eventually, Egypt uh, becomes a thing uh, because Joseph goes to Egypt because he's sold into slavery by his brothers, and he rescues both the Egyptian nation and his fellow people, the early Israelites, the tribes, from a famine. And so the Israelites stay there, and eventually the leaders of Egypt forget who the Hebrews are. And the Hebrews are having lots of babies, and they're starting to become very populous, and so the Egyptians enslave the people of Israel, the Hebrews. So as this unfolds, God, of course, calls Moses, and there is a showdown between the people of Israel and actually really Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And so Yahweh, the God that we worship, has this showdown, and we have those ten plagues, and the tenth plague leads us to Passover, in which we have the angel of death, in which the firstborn of the land shall die, and the people of Israel are spared because of the blood of the Passover lamb. And that's where we're at right now in that salvation history. And I, I called it crash course a little bit because I want to talk about Passover and because I'm a teacher. And so I use, there's actually a YouTube channel called Crash Course. And so when I when, especially for classes like economics or government, when they're tired of talking, I mean, talking, not talking, me talking. They're tired of me talking is what it really is. And so I put this on for 10 minutes or 15 minutes as they're doing their work to kind of reinforce what I'm saying um, as they're doing their homework. So for your Passover crash course, I want to emphasize how important this really was for the ancient Jews. So the first thing, and you see this from the text itself, right in the first verses that we read today, that this was the beginning of their calendar. So the ancient Jews followed a lunar calendar, and their lunar calendar started with Passover. So God's probably telling them something with this. Wouldn't you agree that if God says you're going to start your year with Passover, that's probably something to emphasize. So the Jews, of course, paid attention to that, and they made it a big deal because God made it a big deal. But there's more to it than that. The ancient Jews were so convinced that Passover was the central event in their salvation history, the seminal event that made them who they were because God delivered them from slavery, that they started looking back at all the salvation uh, uh, events in the Old Testament 
and believed that they occurred on the same time as Passover. So in other words, if you went into the calendar and said, all right, here's Passover, it's in March, well, that must have meant that these events also happened in March. For example, they believed that the walls of Jericho fell down at Passover. They believe that Daniel interpreted the writing of the wall. Mene, mene, tekla, farsa. I only remember that because it was in a cartoon when I was little. Okay? They, they, when that happened, it was Passover. Because Nebuchadnezzar, not Nebuchadnezzar, but his grandson, Belshazzar, is using the goblets from the temple. Think about how significant that would be if that's Passover. So they believe that. They also believe that when Abraham received the visitors and uh, Abraham negotiates for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, that that occurred also on the Passover. And so all of those events connected to that one seminal event. So they thought God, because God is in control, and it would be like God to do something like that. There's a pattern here. There's a pattern in the Old Testament that God does these great saving events for his people on the Passover. Of course, we as Christians would also believe that, because Christ goes to the cross on Passover. Another part of this that's really interesting for the ancient Jews is if you read further on, so you get past Genesis, you get past Exodus, then you get to Leviticus, everybody's favorite book to read. When you read through the Bible, right, you're one of those, you know, you think those, uh, I read the Bible in a year challenges, a lot of people do that, or, you know, they follow the lectionary. There's a reason we don't really read from Leviticus very much in our readings. It's just, it's challenging, it's hard. It's not that it's not the word of God, it's just hard. There's a lot of distance between us and those ancient Jews. But if you read the book of Leviticus, you run into things like a guilt offering, and then there's a sin offering, and then there's a wave offering, and there's a grain offering, and there's a peace offering, and then there's all the different ways you do it, and which animals you can use, and how the animals are done, what part of the calendar these things happen on, uh, how the priest uh, does everything that he does, how he washes, what he wears. All of those things the ancient Jews believed are tied into this Passover. Passover, excuse me. So the Passover itself casts this shadow throughout the entire sacrificial system. That's how important this was for the ancient Jews. A last thing I want to say as in our crash course here is the ancient Jews also believed they were actually participating in the Passover when they went through the feast. So in other words, this wasn't just something that, you know, oh, it's Passover day, it's kind of like, let's light a little candle, it's the birthday of the Jews, and then we're going to, you know, have some cake and then move on with our lives. This was a very active participatory event. If you, if you read that text in Exodus, you can look at it. It's printed for you in your bulletins there. They have to have a staff in their hands because they're getting ready to go on a journey. The Exodus means to, it's the journey out of Egypt, right? They have a staff in their hand. They're wearing all dressed for their journey. And then they eat of the sacrifice. They drink of the cups of blessing. They are participants in God's deliverance. This is a very tangible and real thing for them. And this, this was not just something that happened in Egypt, around 1200 to 1400 BC, this was an active thing that God was still doing. So they were connecting themselves when they, when they relived the Passover with those events that took place. And so in the future, any other future Passovers that they would celebrate were connecting them to those Passover feasts. And that's important for us because when Christ encourages us and institutes his uh, Supper of Holy Communion, he actually is telling us to participate with him. Right? Take and drink, all of you. This is the new covenant of my blood. He says we are participants. The Apostle Paul will even say that. Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the cup that we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? And so this is a very active thing. And so it connects to our doctrine of Holy Communion. And so this gets me to our first point here, and that this Passover for us is a Passover of forgiveness. Now, before I became a Lutheran, and Pastor Dinger and I can tell you the story a little bit because it's kind of entertaining because I was me when I was becoming a Lutheran. 
but I was sending theological treatises to pastors, you know, as emails, and they were responding back, and I have it somewhere. It's the weirdest, you know, inquiry that he ever got was this. He still got it. There you go. And so before I was a Lutheran, I, I was raised in a church. It was an evangelical church where we didn't emphasize the doctrine of Holy Communion. Now, it was, we elevated scripture, and we certainly believe that the Bible was the very word of God. And so my dad did right by me in that sense. And I'm thankful for him for elevating the word of God and, and respecting it and reverencing it and memorizing it. It was treasured in our household, and I'm always, I will always be appreciative of that. However, that being said, Holy Communion was something we did maybe once a month, sometimes once a quarter. It, wasn't, it was a big deal, but it was a big deal because it was something that we did to remember Jesus. So rather than something Jesus doing for me, it was a, okay, Jesus, he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He instituted this Passover meal. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So I, we need to make sure that we're very serious. We need to make sure that we're in the right frame of mind. We need to, get, we need to you know, remember our sins. We need, so we took it seriously, but it was more about our performance in the sense that we had to kind of just realize what Jesus did for us, and then we could take communion. And again, it was not done very often. And so some of these active participatory nature things that I'm talking to you about was lost. I didn't feel like I was participating at the Last Supper. I wasn't participating in the sacrifice of Christ. I was more of an observer and just kind of remembering it. It was something that I missed. And so when I became a Lutheran and when I, when I joined our confession, it's one of the things I love about our, our tradition. Not that I'm trying to bash other traditions or anything. It's, it's very real. It's very tangible. It's very objective. When Pastor Dinger gets in front, and I know he and Pastor Chris will agree with me on this one, when the pastors come up and they uh, pronounce absolution, and they say, in the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are acting, literally, we say this in fancy Latin, in persona Christi, they are acting as if Jesus himself were there, and we, in the congregation receiving that absolution, believe that that's coming from Christ himself. He is acting through the pastors. That is very tangible. I never heard that growing up, that I am forgiven. So when I first heard that the first time, I was like, this is awesome. I don't have to, I don't have to just like, I mean, yes, I had God's promises in his word, and I don't want to ignore that, and I don't want to, I want to affirm, yes, we absolutely treasure those promises in his word. But to hear audibly in my own ears, you are forgiven, that just resonated with me, and it's something that I love about what we do here up at Grace. So everything about our faith, is, our faith is incarnational. It's tangible. It's real. It's not something off in the cloud somewhere. The ancient Jews were very physical. And not to be too gross, imagine being one of the Levites, one of the people attached to the temple or the tabernacle, and having to go through this sacrificial system every day. So imagine the smells or the sights and the sounds and how it would feel. I mean, you are in direct contact with death on a daily basis if you were a priest. You saw the cost of sin. Think about how real that was. And even on the Passover itself, I didn't mention this in the previous service. I know Mrs. Gomez emphasizes this with her high school students. When you took the lamb into your house, that lamb lived with you for a while. Think about, I have an eight-year-old daughter. Think about how she would attach herself to this lamb. She likes every cute animal. And then you have to kill it? It's very real. The cost of sin, the cost of deliverance, the cost of redemption, that blood of a spotless lamb was very real for them. In the same way, Jesus institutes Holy Communion by not having us symbolically eat or drink, but actually participate in his body and blood. That's why we have this passage up there. You can see it on the screen as well. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. 
Not symbolically the forgiveness of sins, but the actual forgiveness of sins. This is why sometimes when I have the honor of leading prayers in our church, you've heard me do this at 11 o'clock a couple of times, when I pray about communion, I often emphasize, Lord, thank you that we have forgiveness in our hands. When we're given the element, we're given the host, we're given the very body of Christ, we actually hold forgiveness. We can know for certain that we are forgiven. We don't have to guess. It's not contingent on my emotions. I don't have to perform some sort of act. I don't have to get in the mood or sing a bunch of songs or have a certain ritual. I know that Christ, because of his promise, is present. I love the children's choir song. It struck me during the children's choir song today. It's the same God. The same God throughout history. His promises are always fulfilled. And so if Christ promises to be there, I know that I can receive his benefits. I get his gifts. I hold forgiveness. I taste forgiveness in my mouth. We don't have to wonder if we are forgiven. We are forgiven because it is Christ for me. It is Christ for you. Christ for all of us. So every time we receive communion, we can say we are forgiven, or as the pastors say here at Grace, we are at peace with God. We can know this for, for certain. And this is also why we emphasize here at Grace why it's so awesome when we see you. And I love seeing all the faces. I know Pastor Dinger and Pastor Chris feel the same way. And why it's hard for us, or hard for the pastors in particular, because they care for you as your shepherds when you're not around, because you're missing out. It's not because they're going to check your attendance, they're mad at you, or they're going to hound you down or hunt you down. It's because think about what you're receiving when you're active here, to receive that forgiveness. I don't want to miss that. I don't know about you, when I'm talking about, when I look at my own life, I need more grace. I need more forgiveness. And that's what's so awesome about the sacrament. When we're regularly receiving and we're hearing God's word preached and we're receiving his grace, I need more of that in my life. And when you cut yourself off from that, you're missing out. And that's my encouragement for you. And for those of you who are watching online, we're grateful for you online. I'm not bashing people who are watching online or anything like that. I'm just simply saying, how awesome is it that God provides us that means of grace that is even greater than the Passover that the Jews celebrated? And that takes me to my next point, which is this Passover from death to life, right? The Exodus passage says there, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague or befall you to destroy you. We have passed from death to life. Now, I didn't bring my, I had a book and I had it at 8.30, but my son loves it so much he took it home and I didn't know he took it home. And so, and then my wife packed it away because she's such a good wife and she packs all the kids' stuff up when they went home after the 8.30 service. So I don't have it in front of you, but I'll, so I'll just reference it. So for those of you who know what this is, my kids love, especially my four-year-old and my now just seven-year-old, love the Little Critter books. You know the Little, crit, little Critter, how we say that one wrong? Little Critter books. It's kind of this odd porcupine-looking thing. And they're in this family, and this, this goes all the way back to the 1970s and 80s, but they're still writing these books and coming out with new ones. Well, the one that I grew up with was called Me Too, and it was about an older brother who has a little sister, and he has to share, and she keeps saying Me Too over and over and over again, and my grandparents got it for me when I had a little brother, okay? Well, the one that my kids really like is one that's called I'm Sorry. And so in this little critter book called I'm Sorry, He's, uh, the, the little critter, the, the, the hero, so to speak, that all the kids resonate with, learns that if he says he's sorry, many people will just kind of forgive him and say, okay, that's okay, bud, that's okay, I get, I get that you did a mistake. And he uses that to try to get out of everything. So he, you know, hurts his sister. Oh, I'm sorry. He accidentally tracks in mud in the kitchen. Oh, I'm sorry. And he, it becomes glib. He just says, oh, I'm sorry, it's just, an, just a mistake, right? And eventually this starts building up and building up and his parents get more and more irritated with him. And then finally his dad says, 
Sorry isn't good enough. We have to have a reformation of behavior here. It's not enough to just say you're sorry. Obviously, you're just using this. And then the little critter says, oh, I didn't know that. You know, it's a typical kid's book. And so I use it for my kids. My wife and I read that, and we had one of our children in particular that lived through that, that that's, that's quite appropriate. <laughs> we, had to, we had to use this book a couple of times. Let's just say that. So looking at us, though, and I, I thought about this for a while, and it just struck me. When we look at Passover, and we look at passing from death to life, that we sometimes treat our sin like this. If there's a law point here for me in particular, it's this, is that we take our sin too lightly. It's just an oopsie. It's just a mistake. It's, oh, I'm sorry, God, and then I just keep doing the same thing that I, I, I did again. We don't realize the cost with which our Savior paid for us. We don't realize the depth of our sin. It's really a violation of God's created order and design. It's a rebellion and a rejection against God's eternal well, our will. In one of our confessions, we do this at the earlier service. We have a confession here that we did today as well. One of the things we say is we say, we justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. It's justice. It's justice for God to give us his present and eternal punishment. Not just sort of deserve it. We don't just, you know, sometimes deserve it or somewhat deserve it. We justly deserve God's present and eternal punishment. Because God's standard is absolute moral perfection. And that's a good thing because otherwise he would not be God. The standard is absolute moral perfection. God's word is quite clear that the wages of sin, that was when I, I mentioned my dad, right? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. I had to memorize that as a kid. The scriptures are very clear that that's what the payment is. This means that our sins are not mere mistakes or lovable bad habits or foibles, but actions, desires, and thoughts that truly deserve death. Our natural state is to be in bondage or slavery just like the ancient Israelites. That's offensive to people, by the way, to tell people that, right? You're in slavery right now. Those who are not in Christ, right? That's offensive. It's hard for us to hear that. We need deliverance. But instead of deliverance from the Egyptian taskmasters and Pharaoh, we need a Passover lamb from our own selves, our own state. The author of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ therefore died. Because without his blood, there would be no ultimate forgiveness of sins. One of my favorite hymns that we sing during Lent or Holy Week, it's often on Good Friday, is the hymn Stricken and Afflicted. And this is on the, uh, usually at the noon service. So if you haven't been there, I encourage that. It's hard. It's not an easy service, but it's a good service. That's why we call it Good Friday. It reminds us of our need, but also the lengths to which Christ came to pursue us and to redeem us. It reminds us of the cost, and it makes me grateful. It may make me weep, but it's a grateful weep. It may mean, and believe it or not, in, within that weeping, there's joy also. A joy that's really hard to explain. So in that smitten and afflicted hymn, there's this line. It's the end of, of I think it's verse 2 and then into verse 3. I want you to hear this. It says, The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. And then it goes on, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. So it's talking about observing Christ on the cross. That's me that puts him there. There was a similar sentiment in the song that we sang to there, right? How deep the Father's love for us. Just what we sang today. It's my voice that's mocking him. It's my sins that are holding him there. That is the cost. It's not just an oopsie where like little critter we're saying, I'm sorry. It has a cost. You are deeply bought, and our Christ would stop at nothing but to go to the cross on your behalf. 
It's an awesome thing, and it's, I hope that we, and this is me included, never lose sight of that cost, but also because of the gratefulness that it leads us to. It's an amazing God. There's another hymn that we often sing sometimes, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? That you, my God, would die for me. That thou, my God, would die for me. That I don't, there's no other way to put that as we look at this. And so this leads us to the next one, though, and this is where the good news is, is that God, in our baptisms, closes us with Christ. And so the doorposts and lintels, that's kind of interesting. If you don't know what that means, a doorpost and lintel design is the most basic door. You have a lintel and then two doorposts, right? And so when they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and the lintels, you'll hear some pastors even say this, it's possible they were even making the sign of the cross without even knowing it over the doorposts and the lintels because they were doing this motion, right, on that post. It's possible they were even doing that even back then as a prophecy of sorts or at least a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. But we are clothed with Christ. The doorposts and lintels of our lives are covered in the blood of the Lamb. God continues to deliver and redeem us daily through his word, through Holy Communion, in our baptisms, when we eat of the Passover sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and for life and for salvation. And so it's important to remember that God himself does that work. It's not the pastors that are doing it. It's not me that's doing it. It's not Grace Lutheran Church that's doing it. It's God through and using us as, fa- as fallen and as failures as we are. For some mysterious reason, he empowers us to share this with others. And his Holy Spirit continues to call people to himself. Which brings us to that final point that I have for you, which is a Passover for the future. And there is good news here. What Jesus says here in Matthew 26 is that I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And it strikes me here too to talk about faith, what we have faith in. So our culture, when we use the word faith, often has bad views of what faith is. They mistake what it means. They think it's just kind of like Santa Claus. Well, if I believe Santa Claus is real, then he's real. It's like the movie Elf. There's not enough Christmas spirit. And if we just have enough Christmas spirit, then Santa Claus will exist and he'll deliver toys or something like that. That is not the biblical definition of faith. A better word for faith than what many people think it is, is the word trust. And that trust is created in us by the Holy Spirit. Trust. And it allows us to to have trust not only in God, but also loyalty and fealty to what God has done for us on his behalf. This is not the same as Mark Twain. Mark Twain once said that faith is believing what you know ain't so. In other words, I just wish it to be true. It's probably a fairy tale, but I wish it to be true, and so therefore it's true. Obviously, he's making fun of Christians with that, and other people of faith, but that's not what faith is. Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher from the 19th century, um, he was an existentialist, which is a fancy way of saying that he's angsty. Okay? I'm sort of making fun of existentialists, sorry. But he's angsty. And so he says, you're going to get to a point where nothing makes sense, so you just make a leap in the dark, and that's faith. That's not the case also. It is not just a leap in the dark. It's not something that you do. It's something that has already been done for you on your behalf. Of course, I'm simplifying a little bit with Kierkegaard, but it it, it serves us well. That faith is given to us as a gift. Another thing that people do with faith that's wrong on this too is they think that faith is somehow kind of a magic trick, that it'll make you rich and prosperous, that if I just believe strong enough, I'll be a billionaire. If I just think billionaire thoughts, God's just going to give me billionaire money. That's a lie that the culture will tell you. You'll find people that actually say stuff like this. Or if I believe it's strong enough, God's going to give me a really nice thick head of hair. Or, or, or a healthy life. Or be disease free. Pastor Danger hasn't been believing long enough, apparently. With the <laughs> sorry. <laughs> My wife put me up to that. I'm sorry. You can blame her. She's, it just struck her at the last service. But he's not believing hard enough, you know, that sort of thing. But that's wrong, too. That's not what faith is either. Again, faith is what clings and grasps 
the promises of God. And so why do I bring this up? Because God has given this as faith, this trust in his promises goes all the way back to the garden. That's why that children's uh, choir message was so great. You can see that salvation message uh, proceed throughout all of history. We are not only saved from something in the Passover, we are saved to something. After Passover, God takes Israel on a journey, a journey of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they reach the land that God had promised. In the same way, we have not yet reached the promised land. We know both by observation, our experiences, and of course God's holy word, that everything we experience now is not it. There's something in us that knows something's wrong with the world. We know we're destined for something greater. In our gospel reading, Christ points us to the wedding feast of the Lamb in the life of the world to come, that great banquet of which our Holy Communion meal is only a foretaste. Just a foretaste. I saw the Krauses were here. Mrs. Krause likes to sometimes start her prayers with, Lord, thank you for this day in eternal life. Eternal life has started, but it's also a not yet. There's something that's not quite here yet. C.S. Lewis, in particular, is very helpful here. If you read Mere Christianity, or if you read The Great Divorce, or The Problem of Pain, he often ruminates and thinks about that life of the world to come. What will it be like to be in heaven? How is it to think heavenly thoughts instead of getting distracted by all the stuff around us? In Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that's fair. We are all searching for that transcendent sense of meaning. We're realizing that things aren't quite there. We see things like war in Ukraine. We see pandemics. We see hunger even here. We see corruption. We see broken relationships. We observe the world, and we realize this is not it. We know that we have been destined for another world, a world with no crying, no pain, no suffering, no decay, and no death. We instead are united to our Passover lamb, eternally enjoying God forever. God will always keep his promises, the same God, right? And he cannot deny himself, which means that those of us who are in Christ have a certain hope. We are firmly in his grip, his precious and redeemed people. So to God alone the glory. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.